Good day and welcome to Overdrive, a program that seeks simplicity amongst the complexities when talking about cars and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have a road test of a Mazda 2, a quite small sedan. We look at the history of when nippy little sedans were trendy. Their practicality should not be lost. And in our interview, we talk to an expert in bicycle and pedestrian planning, particularly on how being engaged with the real problems. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the socials of podcasts, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube. Look for Cars, Transport, Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 24th of February 2024. We're now at the stage with our motoring where big is beautiful, where the presence of the vehicle on the road is very important and that size matters. SUVs and utes dominate our market at the expense of passenger cars. Yet Mazda came into its own, I believe, with small passenger cars, particularly around the 90s and into the 2000s. And they did that with cars such as the 323. And my parents had one of those and it was in some ways a little humble but very practical. We've been road testing the Mazda 2, which is a passenger car. And while Mazda is getting much more into the SUVs, they're persevering with this type of vehicle. Is it still got a place in the market? I think it should do, and it's well worth looking at. You're listening to Overdrive. Following the Second World War and on into the 1950s, the typical car was quite small. There was even a move to micro cars, particularly as the availability and price of petrol was a burden to many. The introduction of the Morris Mini in 1959 added social credibility to this initial practical trend, springboarding it into the swinging 60s, where the face of conservative bulk was confronted with nifty little cars, ideal for an urban environment, particularly when you had to park. Spike Milligan not only owned one, but promoted it for free, because he loved it and it was British. Even Princess Margaret, whose status and family, including Queen Elizabeth, were often associated with huge luxury cars such as Bentleys and Rolls Royces. But she created some very different photo opportunities getting in and out of a Mini, as did her husband, Lord Snowden. Families were typically larger then, but we had not yet taken on SUVs with extra seats. So there were many family folklores about squeezing a large number of people into a relatively small car. Safety, including seatbelts, were not part of the equation. The boom in the Japanese car industry rode on the coattails of this trend, with vehicles such as the Toyota Corolla, which was first introduced in 1966. The Mazda 2, now in its fourth generation model, is categorised as a light passenger vehicle, a bit bigger than the micro models dominated by the Kia Picanto, but a little less than the more popular next size up category, which is dominated by the Hyundai i30 and the Toyota Corolla. Mazda passenger vehicles came into their own 
at a time that fitted into a pattern of those who weren't rev heads but wanted a dependable vehicle. It was also a time when engine power and performance was not nearly as developed as it is now and so cars tended to focus on being lighter and therefore smaller. The Mazdas of the 90s particularly hit that market. In 2023, the Mazda 2 represented just 5% of Mazda's total sales, which were dominated by SUVs and utes. But they still produced a number of specification levels for this model. The hatchback has four variants, the Pure, the Pure SP, I assume that means they're more pure, the Evolve and the GT. The sedan version has just two options at the two far ends of the features scale, that is the base model Pure and the top of the range GT. Mazda is not into bargain basement pricing and the current driveway price for the Mazda 2 in New South Wales starts at just over $26,600 and goes up to $32,000. The amount can vary a bit per state depending on local taxes. The leader in the light car class, the MG3, sells for $20,000 drive away. They might not be big, but there's still a good amount of car there for the money. Car makers know that if you can make a vehicle a bit taller and call it an SUV, you can add a couple of thousand grand, at least, onto the price. We drove the top-of-the-line GT, which has extra features such as a 360-degree view monitor, front parking sensors, and radar cruise control. I love the colour of the model we tested. It's called Airstream Blue Metallic. It's a pale or light blue, but has a sense of grey and a depth and richness in the colour that doesn't look bland or flat. In terms of its overall shape, Mazda is not into bling, and so the Mazda 2 has a certain simplicity, yet a smart look with a few nuanced touches that caught the eye of our senior road tester, Evan. There's also a little red feature on the, both on the nose and the tail. They're very small, they're very subtle, but they're there, and I think they, they, they look good, actually. It does have a rear windscreen wiper, which should be standard on every car, but sadly, it is not always the case. Inside, our model has a black leather interior with a grand luxe synthetic suede and some red trim, including the stitching some touches that gave it an upmarket feel. The dash in front of the driver has a simple display with one centre dial showing the speed and a small amount of information on either side. The GT version has a head-up display, which is good although the screen is small, and it has a small infotainment screen on which the reversing camera pictures were clear, but being small you had to concentrate a little harder than normal to pick out the detail which I found to my embarrassment when backing out of a shopping centre car park and not noticing pedestrians quite as quickly as I would have liked to, although there was no accident. When starting up the vehicle for the first time, there's one thing I noticed immediately. One of the things I noticed about this, Evan, is that I got in and I didn't put my seatbelt on while I was just adjusting something we weren't moving but it didn't beep at me annoyingly. Mm. But it left me with a message that I was still aware of it. Yeah. I, I don't need to be nagged. 
Is that a common theme that is coming out of the testing of vehicles that we've got at the moment? I think so, yeah, particularly the Koreans. I have noted in the part my approval of Mazda's system of controlling the infotainment screen, which is based on a dial between the two front seats just back from the gear lever. In fact, the screen is actually a touchscreen as well, so you can lean over and stab at the area you want to go to, but it only works when the car is not moving. I think that makes sense. I did have trouble finding the right adjustment to the side mirrors to pick up the blind spot. Now there's a switch to choose between the adaptive cruise control and the speed limiter. It's only for changing your choice. So every time you start using the car, you don't have to turn the cruise control on. You just hit the set button for it to engage. It did have lane departure warning, but no lane centering. All models have a 1.4-litre four-cylinder non-turbo engine with a six-speed automatic transmission or a six-speed manual in some variants. How does it sound? My wife felt that it sounded pretty good, but if you really are pushing it hard, it starts to get perhaps a little strained, a little wheezy. Yeah, I think I could design the exhaust better. It has just over 80 kilowatts of power and 144 newton metres of torque, modest figures but how well does it get its power to the ground we're stopped at traffic lights going up a hill it is in this situation with it raining and certainly not teeming but very damp road surface that some cars find grip a problem it does have hill start assist which is good you have a choice of one of two driving modes normal or sport Although sport is not made for urban areas, really, is it? It tends to hold the automatic in lower gears, which can become annoying and tiring. It doesn't have paddles on the steering wheel, but you can select gears manually via the gear lever. But is sports mode enjoyable in the right road conditions? Yes, I took this car to a meeting, uh, which I had to go on to Centenary Drive from here, which is, you know, is that big slide up then. Um, and then you turn right. As luck would have it, I had the lights with me, so going up, and yeah, it was just a matter of changing down, changing down, taking the corner. It was quite fun, actually, but the engine was always where I wanted it to be. That says it is really in its element when parking in the tight spaces of a shopping centre. Not for speed, of course, but for convenience. We achieved 6.8 litres per 100 kilometres of fuel consumption, which is not bad and would take a good hybrid powertrain to make significant improvements on that. In the past, if a car was ideal for nipping around the city, it would struggle on a country trip. Have things changed? I took this on a long trip, relatively long, down motorways, and I lost perception that it was a small car. Yep. You may remember in years past, if you're in a small car that was underpowered, you were aware of every hill. Mm. It might not have been a huge barrier, but you were aware of it. Whereas this on cruise control, I can't remember suddenly thinking, oh dear, it's a hill. Yeah. Have I got to do something about that? So in conclusion, the Mazda 2 is an important car in a campaign that we should have that is bring back the nippy little small sedan. It's not a pocket rocket and it's certainly not the cheapest in the market, but it comes with Mazda's reputation. It's a bit hard to get into the vehicle for the first time you try, as Evan found out, 
but a slight adaption to your approach makes it an accessible vehicle. Of all the Mazdas, I have a soft spot for this small sedan. I think it does what it's intended to do. It's possibly a second car in a family or one for one or two people and perhaps one or two very small children, but there's nothing wrong with that. It fits the market, it's efficient, it's effective, and it's got good enough looks that I'd be happy to park it in my driveway. You're listening to Overdrive. Sydney Morning Herald just recently ran an article under the headline Parents are too scared to let their children walk to school. Will $10 million change that? And they reported on the New South Wales government proposing to spend $10 million on widening footpaths, upgrading crossings and planting trees around primary schools in a vid to reverse this trend, which has happened over a long time. They also may consider doing some education programs. But education programs need to be certainly much more than a few government advertising campaigns. They have to be something that embraces people where they're at, not just tries to do a flashy demonstration. Now, Dick Vandendool runs a program to help professional people designed for pedestrians and bike riders, and it's supported through Transport for New South Wales in this state. And he joins us on the line now. Dick, uh, we've been colleagues for a long time. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, David. I was looking at the program, and after the traditional definitions of principles and practicalities, you have, as a section, bicycle and pedestrian facilities fieldwork, facilities inspection by bike and on foot. It's awfully important not just to be theorising in an office, isn't it? Absolutely critical. Everyone that, that comes to this training course absolutely relies on, on, on that component of the, of the programme. As a professional, you can read a few papers uh, and you listen to a few friends uh, you, and you learn things. But no one ever takes the time, no one ever has the time that you go and look at uh, the real world. And that component that we do is we, we go for over an hour and a half walk, an hour and a half bike ride, a maximum of 12 people uh, each on the walk and, and the bike ride. And people see things that they don't normally experience. On, on the walk, for example, we take a wheelchair and everybody gets the chance to uh, to push the wheelchair and to, uh, and to sit in the wheelchair. And the perspective that you get from that uh, is just um, eye-opening. And the same with, with the bike rides. You just... If you can't experience the facilities, how can you design uh, design them well? How, how can you avoid the problems that you're you're and you're dealing with in your in your normal practice? You must experience these things. Many years ago at the AITPM conference, national conference in Melbourne, we went out and transported out, but then rode bikes around Williamstown. I, I must confess, it probably wasn't elegant to look at the way we were riding them, but. It was an example of doing that. I hadn't thought of wheelchairs. That's brilliant. Again, with AITPM, I think we had a, um, a one-day program once to design for uh, visually impaired people. Uh, and that was a real big eye-opener as well. We were asked to uh, blindfold and someone and that someone would then walk up the stairs. It was, I think, in the Leichhardt Town Hall they were hosting it. That's an experience. And the first thing everybody said, okay, you're having the, uh, the, the, the blindfold. Make sure someone else stays with you and holds your hand the whole time because you will trip and you will fall 
and we're going to have to make sure you're not going to fall backwards down the stairs. A real eye opener. And the guy presenting that, he was visually impaired himself, so he blew things up to, uh, to almost one letter at a time on the on the on the presentation screen. Really interesting. I was commissioned to do a half-hour radio documentary on disability and travel. And I thought about doing it very much from perhaps the engineering point of view. Here is a ram. But I really interviewed people that had had trouble, including the blind person Mm. that hated railway stations on curves because the gap between the station and the train varies. He said he knows one station he tries to avoid. Mm. He changes his path to try and avoid that station, which can be inconvenient. But he said if he has to go there, he goes to the centre of the train for where the guard is so that the guard can help him pull him out when he falls between the line. A little tongue-in-cheek, but tragic reflection in a way. The other thing was that he kept getting announcements for a railway station that coming up but didn't tell which side of the train to get on and off. And there was a tr- there's a track in Melbourne that literally goes from one side to the other. It's a single track, and so it's one station's on the left side, one side is right. So it, it is very important. You aren't trying to preach to the converted. These are people that understand the value of it. It's a need to understand the reality of what works and what doesn't work. I'll tell you a story. When we first started running this, this training program 20 years ago, uh, it was compulsory for product managers at the then uh, RTA to come to this program. And they all thought, oh, okay, well, we're, we're now 60 years old. Um, we know everything in transport. Uh, we've been designing roads for the last 40 years. So what's new? And then we took them for a walk and we took them for a ride. And even the crusty old, very experienced senior product managers at, uh, at RTA, they said, wow, if only we'd known this before. And so it's, it's a real practical angle on getting people out in the field looking at things they don't normally look at. A real eye-opener, a real game-changer. It was an old engineer many years ago who said a pedestrian is only somebody walking to a car. We can't have a utopian world, can we? Do you embrace the notion, given that the government's talking about $10 million, I presume that won't go very far, we have to think about practical solutions and not necessarily just the utopian ideal? People love to walk. It's the most favourable activity people undertake. You go walk your dog, you go for a, a stroll in the park, you go walk along the beach. But the facilities need to be good. I'll give you a really interesting example. I, I've worked for a long while on the Burke Street Cycleway, uh, and we didn't just change the um, the cycleway. We also changed all, all the footpaths. We put in new trees, and, and just about everything was new, including downpipes in some of the houses because they crossed the footpath. <laughs> So we delivered a completely new facility, and, and that was a complete change in the way that that whole street works. And one of the mums at the uh, local public school in the Burke Street Primary School, she worked with an education provider at the time. And she said to the principal, can I teach all the kids how to walk and ride to school? And suddenly the Burke Street Primary School uh, had the largest amount of kids walking and riding to school because every intersection along Burke Street had changed. Either the walking and cycleway and, uh, was had priority over cross traffic and turning traffic, or it was controlled by traffic signals. And um, suddenly the street became safe. So now many of these kids, even today, 20 years later, uh, or 10 years later, are walking and riding to school unaccompanied. I mean, as a good road safety professional, you would say 
You've got to hold the kids under 12 years of age, hold them by the hand when you cross the road. There's no need for that anymore when the facilities are really, really good. But it didn't cost just $10 million. It's safe, but also it is perceived to be safe by the parents. Yes, yeah. So yes, you need to build infrastructure and it needs to be safe infrastructure. But the old saying, build it and they will come, uh, is only partially true. Uh, you really need to, especially young kids, you need to teach them how the system works. Uh, you need to teach them how to behave safely. And once you've done that, then they can uh, do things safely on the way to school. And that's how you improve the amount of kids walking uh, to and from school. Build it and they will come can be one of the most arrogant statements from a professional sitting in an office. And it may not be the answer. I came across this when I was talking to Liz Ant, behavioural scientist and a transport survey expert, where I was saying about signposting in Roselle recently didn't have enough professional input to it. And she said, well, hang on, hang on, go further. It never asked the people. Yeah. It never tested the people. And we can theorise. We've got standards and we use capital letters here and, and what have you. No one ever put it in front of some people and said, what did you see on the signpost? Mm. That's critical, isn't it? It's not just even walking it. It is also the ability to be able to ask parents and children where they're at and what they're doing exactly uh, and that's that's a key component you, you need to communicate with your interest group because stakeholders are the people that are going to be using the facility uh, again so going back to the Burke street project that started off as uh, green paint on the road and the council uh, spoke to um, the residents and all the residents said yeah okay uh, that's just green paint is not going to make it safer so now we have a separated facility because of the feedback from the people. And, and then in the end, the feedback from the people was just fantastic. When we started uh, removing the, um, the construction sort of compounds uh, all along Burke Street, uh, one of the residents uh, um, walked over to, the, um, to the, the construction manager and he said, um, and the construction manager went sort of, okay, um, why I want to talk to you? And he said, when are you coming back? Uh, because these people felt it was such an important improvement for, for Burke Street. And they're happy with the outcome. So talking to your, to your residents, to your stakeholders is absolutely critical. It also looks right. Absolutely, yeah. It also looks right to a car driver. Yes, exactly. It looks, it looks right from all perspectives. It can also be said, and I think in fairness, that the opportunity to do that was when they built a bypass, the Eastern Distributor. You put arterial traffic in its proper place, and there is that often quoted thing, oh, you build a road and more people will use it. Well, there's also a case of saying, well, let's build a road that helps a local community by building a bypass. If it gets too much traffic, well, you consider that from other reasons. But simply restricting Burke Street would have just made it wall-to-wall traffic in a narrower number of lanes. Well, that's, that's how Burke Street started off. Uh, and then when we started building the uh, Eastern Distributor, uh, we, in fact, uh, reopened Burke Street to, um, to four lanes of, uh, of peak hour traffic, uh, with Crown Street complementing it for, uh, for the northbound direction and Burke Street for southbound. And for many years, while that was under construction, that's what you had in Burke Street. In hindsight, I should have bought uh, properties all along Burke Street, uh, and I would have been a rich man now. But... <laughs> <laughs> of course, up with all the traffic removed and, and uh, went up even more after the cycle was finished. I interviewed a guy that said that property values is a key indicator of transport disadvantage. Yeah, exactly. Again, Parramatta Road um, uh, is now arguably 
an opportunity for um, revitalization with uh, fewer traffic lanes. Oh, yes. More green space, places to sit. I mean, there are so many um, shops all along uh, Parramatta Road that, that barely survive. And there is such a great opportunity. So many people live there. Urban renewal has failed along arterial roads and the building of the West Connex, which is controversial. But if it's been built, the great tragedy is we then charge a significant financial impost to use the road we want people to use as opposed to the old... Parramatta Road. Councils and that, have you seen over the years, the 20 years or more, an evolution of people's attitude and understanding of not just moving traffic, but understanding what a community can and should be? Now, I think we need to sort of start asking people um, what they really want in their streets. There is now a, a movement called um, Better Streets. It's not about cycling. It's, it's not about walking. It's simply to get a better street. Everyone wants to have a better street. And if you ask them what does a better street look like, you can get kids to draw their street. What would you like to do in your street? If you get kids to um, draw their street, they want to play in the street. They want to um, have a barbecue. They want to sit under a tree. They want to talk to their friends. There's a wonderful piece of research that goes back sort of to my university days and, 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 and beyond, where they drew the activities of, uh, of people in, uh, in, in, uh, in High Street, a very busy street, and in Middle Street, a, a less busy street, and in Low Street, a very quiet street. And guess what happens with uh, with the people movement in that street? In High Street, you see very few people crossing the road, uh, even very few people walking along the footpath to get to their neighbours. And then you look at the movement patterns, uh, movement patterns in, in Low Street. Uh, in Low Street, you could barely see the street anymore. There were so many lines on the piece of paper in the drawing because people visit their neighbours. They walk along the footpath, go three, four houses up the road. And the difference in is fascinating. So ask people what they want to do, yes. It's lovely that we plot cars via mobile phones and to work out their speed. You mentioned earlier that there's an awful lot of tricks of walking, but maybe we don't understand it. I recently interviewed Chris Stapleton, who went through an area and made a conclusion, which turned out to be right, about a high crime rate, simply because the main road divided the community and reinforced an us and them, you know, one side of the road and the other. Mm. There are some deep-lying impacts of this work, other than just how quickly does a car travel. Another AITPM conference where a presenter presented an example of where they sat kids down and asked them to draw their route that they travelled to school. Some of the diversions may not have been to the parents' warmest uh, embrace, but it was a reality and perhaps we need to cater for that rather than try and sit and condemn it. Exactly. Um, when you build good and safe streets and you teach kids how to use those, um, those are the outcomes that we can start looking for. And um, so, um, yeah, again, as you asked before, should we ask the people? Yes, we should ask the people. You, you raised another interesting point before um, in your in your opening opening words about advertising. Uh, and no advertising alone never does it. Uh, and certainly not when it's just a uh, a quick flash in the pan for a couple of weeks. You see a couple of ads, and that's the end of it. But now think back to the, um, the Sydney Olympics in 2000, and the government put up a huge amount of advertising. Don't drive to you know, the Olympic um, event sites, uh, take public transport. We've increased public transport, and there is no parking. And everybody took the train and the bus, and there were no traffic jams, there were no parking problems. The only parking problems there were was at Homebush Bay, 
because the very large parking station they did have, it wasn't getting filled up, so they weren't making any money out of the car parking. <laughs> and, and, and guess what? They did the same thing with the um, Gold Coast, uh, what did they have there? The Commonwealth Games uh, a few years back. And again, they had very broad advertising uh, saying, um, as they did in Sydney Olympics, uh, don't drive, there is no parking, take the bus and the train and a tram. But a similar success. Uh, the problem in, in, in both uh, Sydney and on the Gold Coast was after the, the Games were over, Olympic Games in Sydney and the Commonwealth Games in, on the Gold Coast, they stopped advertising. And guess what? People went back into their cars because it was the most convenient thing for them. Dick, it's been uh, lovely to talk to you. There's some good, rich stuff there that should push us in some very positive directions. I thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Dave. Great talking to you. And that's Dick Van Den Doel, who is an expert and transport planner but has specialised particularly in pedestrian and bicycle facilities and encouragement and communication and all the things needed to bring together a community to have transport that brings about great benefits, not just a travel time that gets you to a location. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Evan Jones, Dick Vandendool, Mazda Australia, Bruce Potter and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au and for links to the socials and podcasts, look for Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <music>